My name is Tom Palmer, and among my various responsibilities, I'm the director. I was thinking the other day, there have been a few changes since 1978, but the Cato University has been remarkably consistent. And it could be because our principles don't change every year. Uh, there are some principles that are eternal. So if you think about what it was like back then, I noticed maybe a handful of people could remember back that far. Uh, we didn't have cell phones, much less smartphones, personal computers, no Twitter, and so on. And somehow we managed to meet and talk about liberty. I don't know how it happened today, but we did it. Back in 1978, Cato was headquartered in a very nice, cozy little office in a very nice city called San Francisco. And no one dreamed at that time that we would now be in this headquarters of liberty right here in Washington, D.C. But it's thanks to our thousands of sponsors who give freely, we get no government money whatsoever, uh, that this is possible, that we have a full-time staff dedicated to working every day consistently for limited government, for constitutional government, for respect for individual rights, for peace and freedom. Now I look out on the crowd and I see uh, some new friends whom I'm hoping to get to meet and some longtime friends. I learned a long time ago not to say old friends. Uh, but since most of you are new friends, I thought I'd spend a little bit of time talking about the Cato Institute's ideas and history. Now Cato University is a rather small part of the work of the Institute. The Cato produces thousands of products, research papers, testimony before Congress and regulatory bodies, books, media appearances, newspaper and journal articles, uh, media briefings, public lectures, videos, filings before the Supreme Court, tweets, blogs, and all kinds of new media I can't even begin to understand. All of that work is based on sound and rigorous analysis that's in turn based on well-checked empirical evidence. You can find a vast treasure trove of it at Cato.org and Cato's other websites, such as downsizinggovernment.org, freetrade.org, policemisconduct.net, overlawyered.com, and there are uh, some others. Although Cato University is not a very big part of Cato's budget or output, it's still a very important part. It's even central to Cato's approach to public policy. Now, most people out there uh, no Cato because the Institute offers a coherent, systematic, and thorough program of objective analysis of government policies. We have scholarly research and public commentary, uh, detailed and concrete proposals for reform or for a frequently abolition of existing policies and government agencies. And Cato has a very uh, substantial and I should say very successful track record of filings before the Supreme Court as well. But all those things have to be rooted in some kind of principles. Now, there are people in Washington, D.C. who pretend that they don't have principles or they don't have an agenda. I once uh, gave a talk before the Fulbright Fellows who were in Washington, D.C., and the vice president of another think tank, I won't mention it was Brooking, well, I shouldn't say that, but <laughs> who's another think tank uh, in Washington uh, and uh, said, unlike the Cato Institute, we do not have any agenda. We only produce objective social science research. And everyone laughed. <laughs> uh, everybody has an agenda by which we mean the principles that motivate us. In fact, just the questions that you ask and the topics that you think are worthy of study tell me a lot about your principles. I'll talk about some of those in a moment. Our approach is to be upfront about what our principles are, to be willing to uh, engage people with them, to discuss them, to debate them, to defend them. And in doing so, we think it keeps us more honest, more serious, because we do not smuggle them in the back door. We make it very clear, these are the things that we believe in. This is the research that we have done, and it should be judged in terms of the quality of the, the data, the analysis, and so on. We're not smuggling anything in into it. Our principles are there for everyone to see, and we think it, make, we think it makes us better 
at being objective. We try at all times to maintain a direct connection between what we do and our principles of individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, peace, justly acquired property, and freedom of exchange. Now that's why Cato offers not only commentary on current events, but another resource I hope you'll visit at some point, www.libertarianism.org, which has just got a wealth of material on those principles, on the history of liberty and libertarian ideas. So maintaining the connection between our principles and our public policy work is very, very important to us. We don't deny that we have principles and then, in fact, smuggle them in, which is far more common. Now, to understand what it's all about, you'd have to go back way, way, way into distant uh, antiquity, the 1970s. <laughs> so most people here in this room were not born in the 1970s. Uh, but let me tell you what it was like, because I read about it in my high school history books. Uh, <laughs> The idea of limited government was considered eccentric, off-the-wall, kooky. Uh, imagine the wonderment of people looking at you if they heard that you were against arresting parents who were homeschooling their own children. Or if you were also against uh, arresting people who kissed someone of the same gender or arresting people who wanted to take a truckload of oranges from Florida to Minnesota at a price voluntarily agreed on by the customers rather than set by a federal regulatory bureau. I mean, really, who are people to make those decisions for themselves? Now, there were, to be sure, people who spoke out for the principle that peaceful actions that don't hurt other people should be tolerated, but we were definitely viewed as being on the edge of acceptable discourse and maybe even off the edge entirely. People who thought that taxes were disruptive and government mandates were unjustified and people should be allowed to determine whether they would smoke marijuana, that's just too crazy for words. But if we were on the edge at that time, the edge has moved very much to the center of political debate and discourse today. The world is very different in this regard. So many of the ideas we promoted back then that were considered wild are now considered mainstream, and in fact, even uncontroversial. It's worth remembering that whenever we're dismayed because some policies are getting worse, and yes, many are getting worse, but do remember how much the world has changed. I was thinking the other day, I gave a talk to a group of students, actually yesterday, uh, how long I have been involved in the campaign for marijuana legalization. Forty-three years ago, I organized a group on my college campus to campaign for legalizing marijuana. I did not use marijuana then. I still do not use it now. It's not a part of my life. I will admit, I did try it, and unlike one of our presidents, I did inhale. Uh, <laughs> But I didn't like it. It wasn't for me. Uh, but it made me angry that people are put in prison for owning a plant and for doing something that may be harmful to them, but isn't hurting me. And it isn't my business to tell other people how to live their lives. Uh, so I've been working for 43 years for legalization. We called it decriminalization back then. And the fact is we're winning. We're winning on this debate, and it was worth it. It's worth it if it means that people in future will be spared arrest, brutalization, imprisonment, and having their lives completely ruined. It was all worth it, even those 43 years. So we're in this effort for the long haul. We've made a lot of progress, but there's still a long road ahead of us on so many issues. And we believe in thinking about principles and looking over the long term. There's a movie, which I recommend anytime I'm feeling down, I try to go watch it again, called Amazing Grace. And it's about Wilberforce. Fifty years he worked for the abolition of slavery. Fifty years. He suffered. It was terrible. He, 
His health was destroyed in the process, but he lived to see slavery abolished. And that was worth it. So he so many times thought of giving up. He was not making any progress. And his friend said, one more day. Let's go on. Let's do it. And they were successful. Well, so let's go back again to the 1970s. A group of academics and business people got together and discussed so there should be an institution that would make the case for liberty systematically and professionally, not in an off-the-cuff way or cocktail party conversation, but at the highest levels, engaging public intellectuals, engaging the media, engaging policymakers, showing the evidence that policies of liberty work, that the world can be made better if we reduce government's arbitrary power examining how the world really works, looking at facts rather than merely indulging in fantasies, realizing not only what is seen, but also what is not seen in government policy, asking about the full costs of policies and their victims, and not only, as is typical, focusing on the benefits and who benefits from them. Those are the visible things. But what did it cost? What did not happen? because this government policy was undertaken. An institution that would promote reality-based analysis rather than starting with the assumption so common in academic discourse and in discourse in politics in Washington that the people who will implement the policies you propose are all wise, all-knowing, and infinitely benevolent. Finally, an institution that would promote better public policies by formulating feasible, just, and constitutionally sound policy proposals that could be put on the menu of public choice. And the result was the Cato Institute. Cato was formally founded in 1977 with the following mission. To increase the understanding of public policies based on the principles of limited government, free markets, individual liberty, and peace. The Institute will use the most effective means to originate, advocate, promote, and disseminate applicable policy proposals that create free, open, and civil societies in the United States and throughout the world. Now, the Institute underwent a process of re-examination a couple of years ago. A lot of thought was put into it, and the board adopted a slightly shorter mission. I'll read that to you. The mission of the Cato Institute is to originate, disseminate, and increase understanding of public policies based on the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace, our vision is to create free, open, and civil societies founded on libertarian principles. Now, the name of the Cato Institute deserves a little bit of explanation. It's not the Central Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, it refers very, very indirectly to a Roman statesman, Cato the Younger, who died in his own hand in Utica in 46 BC. Should not be confused with his great-grandfather, Cato the Elder. This is a common mistake. I'm sure you run into it all the time. Uh, but they were actually different people, although they were from the same family. Cato the Younger was famous for his insistence on the rule of law, on the Constitution, and on the dangers of centralization of power. He opposed the ambitions to achieve total power of both Caesar and Pompey, the rivals for power at the time. And the historian Plutarch wrote of him in his famous life of Cato the Younger that he was, quote, the only free and only undefeated man. There's a famous story when he was temporarily allied with Pompey against Caesar, and they had won a battle and he was with the army. And they were celebrating, and Pompey said, where is Cato? He should be at the party. And he said, well, he's in his tent. And he went and found him weeping. He said, why are you not out celebrating? He said, I have seen my fellow countrymen slaughter each other. So this was a very different attitude from those who wanted to gain power, Pompey and Caesar. <clears throat> After the final defeat, he took his own life rather than submit to Caesar's power. And he signaled that the empire had been destroyed, that the republic, pardon me, had been destroyed, that that was the end. 
He was an inspiration to all those who favored a Republican, I put a small r, a form of government under law to absolutism and arbitrary and unaccountable government. Years later, the Emperor Nero commissioned the Roman poet Lucan to write a great poem known as the Pharsalia on the Roman Civil War. It was to be a celebration of the Caesarian cause, that is to say, a celebration of the destruction of the Republic and its replacement by the empire. Lucan wrote instead a very different poem. The hero was not Caesar or his heirs who destroyed the Republic, it was Cato the Younger who fought to preserve it. In describing the conflict between Caesar and Pompey for preeminence, which had ripped the Republic apart, Lucan wrote, Caesar cannot now bear anyone ahead, nor Pompey any equal. Who more justly took up weapons is forbidden knowledge. Each has on his side a great authority. The conquering cause, the gods, the conquered Cato. That is to say, Cato was an equal authority. He was the one who represented what was right and moral. The Emperor Nero commissioned the work and was not pleased by it. And at the age of 25, Lucan was obliged to commit suicide. Dante, in his, his Divine Comedy, placed Cato the Younger at the gates of purgatory. He was denied the heavenly vision because he was not a Christian, having been born, uh, died before the birth of Christ, but because of his virtue, suffered no punishment. Dante and his guide, the poet Virgil, approach the old man, Cato the Younger, who demands to know how they have passed from hell to purgatory. Virgil responds, and he defends Dante's right to pass, saying, look kindly on his coming, if you will. He goes in search of liberty. All know who gave their life for that, how dear it is. You know yourself. For dying in that cause, death had at Utica no sting for you. Your mortal robe on judgment day will shine. So Cato's memory lasted for over two millennia, and it continues in the Cato Institute. But was the Cato Institute named directly after Cato the Younger? No. It's even more complicated than that. It's named after his legacy. Cato the Younger was presented to European audiences by the English writer Joseph Addison in 1713 when his play Cato, a Tragedy, was performed to great acclaim in London. It was the sensation of the London stage. So imagine Phantom of the Opera, Cats, and Star Wars all in one. Uh, it was translated into many languages and performed all over Europe as well as in the colonies of North America. It was George Washington's favorite play. He had the play performed before the beleaguered American soldiers at Valley Forge in 1778, during that very terrible winter. Washington staged the play before his exhausted and hungry troops to rally their spirit to fight on, regardless of the odds. In the play, Cato's son states in the first act, "'Tis not in mortals to command success, but we'll do more, Sempronius, we'll deserve it. And Washington was determined that his army would deserve victory. Years before, at the age of 26, when he was fighting in the French and Indian Wars, Washington had written a letter home that said, I should think my time more agreeably spent, believe me, in playing a part in Cato. But that, in fact, was what his life turned out to be. In effect, he played a part in Cato. I'm a great admirer of George Washington. Now, many of the most memorable phrases of the American Revolution and the War for Independence were cribbed from, or were at least inspired by Addison's play, Cato, including Patrick Henry's famous lines from a speech of March 23, 1775, at the St. John's Church in Richmond, Virginia. They were an echo of words from the play, Cato. <clears throat> uh, the young Prince Juba is told, quote, remember, the hand of fate is over us and heaven exacts severity from all our thoughts. It is not now a time to talk of aught but chains or conquest, liberty or death. And this was the inspiration for Patrick Henry. But there's still one more step from Cato 
to the Cato Institute. And that was the inspiration that Addison's play gave to two Whig writers in London, John Trenchard and Thomas Gordon, and they wrote a series of newspaper articles, 144 of them, and signed them Cato, because this was the name everyone thought of as an advocate of constitutionally limited government and liberty under the law. Those articles are published between November 1720 and December 1723, and they offered popularizations and explanations and applications of what were called at the time Whig ideas, or we might say proto-libertarian, early formulations of libertarian ideas that had been associated with the levelers, with William Walwyn, Richard Overton, with John Locke and Algernon Sidney. Now those essays were then collected together and published in book form, and they were known as Cato's Letters, and they were published in the American colonies many, many times. All of the American founders had them in their libraries. So this we know because most of them had libraries that persisted, and you can find well-read copies of Cato's letters. They were very important for the political education of those who then formulated and articulated the principles of the American Revolution and fought for an independent republic. Bernard Balin, very distinguished American historian, wrote a wonderful book called The Origins of American Politics. And he said, so influential was Cato's letters in the colonies, so packed with ideological meaning, that reinforced by Addison's universally popular play, Cato, and the colony's selectively Whiggish reading of the Roman historians, it gave rise to what might be called a catonic image, personifying the whole of opposition thought, in which the career of the half-mythological Roman and the words of the two London journalists merged indistinguishably. As Balin put it, it was in America that the major themes of 18th century radical libertarianism were brought to realization. The first is the belief that power is evil, a necessity perhaps, but an evil necessity that is infinitely corrupting, that it must be controlled, limited, restricted, and in every way compatible with a minimum of civil order. Written constitutions, a separation of powers, bills of rights, limitations on executives, on legislatures and courts, restrictions on the right to coerce and wage war, all express the profound distrust of power that lies at the ideological heart of the American Revolution and that has remained with us as a permanent legacy ever after. Those principles identified with the name Cato were then written by the founders into the Declaration of Independence the state constitutions, the Articles of Confederation, and the United States Constitution and Bill of Rights. Now, because of the scholarship of Balin and others who identified the really important role that Cato's letters played in the American Foundation, the Cato Institute was named for those letters. The contemporary institute that bears the name Cato, uh, like Cato's letters, explain in plain language the principles of liberty, and then apply them to the issues of the day. So Cato doesn't merely produce research or promote policy improvements or good government. We connect all of those policies to core principles of limited government and individual rights. Now, among the things that distinguishes Cato is a unique question. I mentioned earlier that I can tell what your principles are by the questions that you ask. And it's a question that's asked by Cato scholars and analysts regularly. It is not a popular question in Washington, D.C., I can tell you. It has been considered rude, it's out of place, coarse, and undignified. If you ask it publicly, expect to see noses wrinkled in disgust all over Capitol Hill. It's a conversation stopper. And the question is, is this proposed or currently exercised power authorized in the legal documents that found this republic? Specifically, where in the Constitution of the United States of America is this policy authorized? And that is a question they hate. And they know when you ask it, you're a bad person <laughs> that you would ask such a question. <clears throat> but thanks to Cato scholars, Roger Pilon, Robert Levy, now our chairman, and Bob, if you ever get to meet him, he's an amazing person of integrity and intellect. I respect him so much. And Professor Randy Barnett, professor at Georgetown University Law School, who will be 
teaching uh, here at Cato University. That question has become one of the core questions in the key constitutional debates and battles of our time. And our colleagues worked for a long time to put it there. It did not happen overnight, and it did not happen on its own. I could explain at greater length the important role that Cato has played in securing our right to keep and bear arms, uh, the right of people to privacy in their homes and marriages, the right to the due process of law guaranteed under the Constitution, the right to property, and others, but it would take a very long time, and I will spare you. Suffice it to say that it is really an honor for me to be able to work with the people who have done all of those things and accomplished uh, those re uh, remarkable achievements in the courts and in the legislature. Now, Cato, we do believe that words have meaning. Those meanings are not just what they want, we want them to mean or whatever passing fancy we have. We reject the idea of a living constitution, which changes its shape in accordance with the policy imperatives of the moment, like an amoeba sending out pseudopods to absorb anything into itself. Uh, such a living constitution has no determinant authority, no limits, and no meaning. Thomas Sowell put it very neatly. He said, the moment you find out your constitution is living is the moment you know it's dead doesn't mean anything at that point. Now, when I was very young, I thought the idea of the rule of law was quaint. It was interesting, but what did it have to do uh, with freedom? Well, I learned how important the rule of law is, not just from books, but from witnessing the consequences of lawlessness in communist countries, in the USSR and others in the Soviet bloc. They had very extensive systems of administration and commands but very little that could be identified as law. I organized a conference. I spent a lot of time in the Soviet bloc. And immediately with the uh, collapse of communist states in Eastern Europe, but the Soviet Union was still there, organized a conference on the teaching of law, resurrecting law as a topic in the universities. And we brought in professors from Great Britain, from Belgium, from Germany, from Italy, uh, to hold workshops with professors from Soviet Union, Poland, uh, Bulgaria, uh, Albania, and elsewhere. And I rec recall on one occasion, one of the British professors talking about contract law, and he said, let's say, it's a technical question, contract law, but everyone will understand the point. You've made a contract to build a house for 100,000 forint. But now you, the builder, find there's been a change, and the cost of your inputs will be 170,000 forint. You will lose all that money. What do you do? The correct answer is you have anticipated that, and you put a non-performance clause into the contract, that there'll be some money damages paid. But the professors of law from the various communist countries said, well, you write a new contract. That's not a contract. Maybe how some people do business, I have one person in mind, uh, but it is not a contract. And it was very important to reestablish the teaching of law. Law is extraordinarily important because it helps us to coordinate our behavior. Milton Friedman was very active in this debate, and I remember back in 1989 uh, what he said about this issue. And then what he said later, he was a humble person, and he recognized when he had made a mistake. At a Cato program, <clears throat> he was asked, what have we learned in the last decade? This was after the collapse of communism. Now, I'll quote what he said. We have learned about the importance of private property and the rule of law as a basis for economic freedom. Just after the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union collapsed, I used to be asked a lot, what do these ex-communist countries have to do in order to become market economies? And I used to say, you can describe that in three words, privatize, privatize, privatize. But I was wrong. That, is, that wasn't enough. The example of Russia shows that. Russia privatized, but in a way that created private monopolies, private centralized economic controls that replaced government's centralized controls. It turns out that the rule of law is probably more basic than privatization. Privatization is meaningless if you don't have the rule of law? What does it mean to privatize if you do not have security of property, if you can't use your property as you want to? He was exactly right about that. 
It makes no sense to talk about a market economy if there's no functioning legal system, no one to draw up contracts, no court system that can adjudicate uh, disagreements and so on. That's the, what our late chairman, William Niskanen, used to call the soft infrastructure of the free society. So law makes it possible for us to coordinate our activities, but it does something else. It subjects power to law, and that is the other important part of law and a great achievement of civilization. James Harrington put it very neatly in a memorable phrase in 1656. He said, seeing they that make the laws and commonwealths are but men, the main question seems to be how a commonwealth comes to be an empire of laws and not of men. What we want to be governed by is the law and not to be subject to the arbitrary will of power of other people. Thomas Jefferson focused on that question in the Kentucky Resolutions of 1798. He said it would be a dangerous delusion where confidence in the men of our choice to silence our fears for the safety of our rights. Confidence is everywhere the parent of despotism. Free government is founded in jealousy and not in confidence. It is jealousy and not confidence which prescribes limited constitutions to bind down those whom we are obliged to trust with power. Our constitution has accordingly fixed the limits to which and no further our confidence may go. In questions of power then, let no more be heard of confidence in man, but bind him down from mischief by the chains of the constitution. Now, in Washington, D.C., you will not find many politicians who warm to those words. They complain about gridlock. We got to get things done. It's very important. Why do you want all these limitations on our power? We have things to do. But what they call gridlock, we call constitutional procedures. And that is important to insist on the law. The president cannot commit us to war without a vote of the Congress. The president cannot arbitrarily do this, that, and the other things when those powers are not in the president's hands. And I should add, the Congress may not do things that are not also delegated to them. The American constitutional order is very clear about this. So everyone will have one of these. I love this. This was a very important thing I worked on uh, when I started at Cato. So everyone can carry one. And I've been so happy because I always carry two, one for me and one for the poor schmuck next to me on the plane. <laughs> uh, and sometimes I've offered them and they say, I have one. And you cannot imagine how warm and wonderful that feels to have a taxi driver in Pittsburgh says, I got one right here uh, when I offer one. Uh, but it's very clear in this document, start with the Declaration of Independence. People understand that we hold these truths to be self-evident and so on. It says, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. This is consistently misquoted, and I've heard it misquoted by people who ought to know better. Government derives its power from the consent of the governed. It doesn't say that. It says powers, which is plural which suggests some may be derived and some not. And then it explicitly limits those to just powers, which means some powers are unjust, and if unjust, not derived from the consent of the governed. What a remarkably uh, compact way of expressing the idea of limited government. And then in the Constitution, when you go to Article 1, Section 1, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in the Congress of the United States. Herein granted. It tells you there are powers that are not granted herein. And then Article 1, Section 8, the Congress shall have the power to, and then there is a list, an enumeration of rights. Those are the powers Congress shall have. And we ask when Congress proposes a law, Show me on the list where that power is, where you have this authority or power. Take a very simple example. When alcohol was made illegal, they understood they had to amend the Constitution to do that. But when other substances are made illegal, they don't do that anymore. They just assume they have whatever powers they decide to give themselves. And then finally, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. 
the crowning glory, in my opinion, of the Constitution. Amendment 9. The enumeration in the Constitution, that is to say the listing, of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. If we didn't put it on the list, it doesn't mean you don't have it. That's very clear language. <coughs> Amendment 10. The power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. I cannot imagine a more concise way of saying if the power is not on the list, they don't have it. It's very clear. But these two are the forgotten amendments, the ones that are conveniently overlooked consistently. Well, they've been brought to the fore again by Cato scholars. <clears throat> now, the program here at the Cato University offers an intensive immersion in those ideas of liberty. It's a seminar on political economy, not just economics, which grew out of political economy, but all the sciences of human beings living together. Sociology, political science, economics, psychology, jurisprudence, and other disciplines. And we'll get to see how those are connected. Now, that movement has gone under different names in different countries and different places and different times. Uh, it's had many different names. Whigism, I mentioned, republicanism. Liberalism was the most common one, but that has led to confusion in the United States uh, because some other people took over the term liberal to describe themselves. In most of the rest of the world, liberal means you believe in a free market economy, limited government, rule of law, and personal freedom. But because of this confusion, the word libertarian came to the fore in the United States, or an academic discourse, classical liberalism. But if you go out in public and say I'm a classical liberal, people think you're Joe Biden or something. <laughs> uh, so it's used mainly in academic discourse. Now, those ideas of liberalism or libertarianism connect together a lot of intellectual disciplines. We could even speak of a science of liberty. And that science has developed over a long period of time. Classical liberals or libertarians believe in liberty as a political goal, as the preeminent political value, but not the only value in life. That's a common misconception. There are a lot of values in life, things that make life worth living, love, and friendship, success, art, <clears throat> cats, so many important things uh, that give meaning to life. Uh, but as a political goal, liberty is the dominant one. That's a central theme of a Cato book that came out a few years ago, which I recommend very highly. It was published by Cato and Cambridge University Press by a dear uh, friend of mine, George H. Smith. It's called The System of Liberty. It's a really, really good book. And George looks at how these different ideas are interrelated, an interdisciplinary approach to libertarianism. And he see, uh, explains very neatly uh, how different ideas are giving meaning by their complements. It's a functional system. The parts contribute to the same overall end. And the primary value, in this case for libertarianism, it's uh, liberty, is the regulative principle and the unifying theme. So for a simple example, to ask whether or not it's an infringement on liberty depends on what a person should be at liberty to do. For libertarians, liber liberty isn't just doing any damn thing you want, whatever pops into your head, regardless of the consequences. Stealing other things from other people, uh, burning down someone's building, uh, that's license. And liberals, classic liberals, always distinguish liberty from license. And liberty requires the rule of law. John Locke put it very neatly in his second treatise, the end of law is not to abolish, the end meaning the goal, of law is not to abolish or restrain, but to preserve and enlarge freedom. Where there is no law, there is no freedom. That's a very important thing, I think. He stated it very directly. Where there is no law, there is no freedom. Liberty is to be free from restraint and violence from others, which cannot be where there is no law. Freedom is not, as we are told, that is to say by advocates of unlimited state power, a liberty for every man to do whatever he wants, for who could be free when every other man's humor could dom domineer over him? But a liberty to dispose in order as he lists, as he desires, his person 
actions, possessions, and his whole property within the allowance of those laws under which he is, and they are not to be subject to the arbitrary will of another, but freely follow his own. Liberty depends on that to which one has a right, your property. But what is your property? Well, note that for Locke, it's not just your stuff. In modern English, we'd say, this is my property. Locke would say, that's a strange thing to say. What a puzzling expression. Property means a right. This is a phone. It's a thing. He would say, I have a property in this thing. The right to use it, to call people, to sell it. I have a bundle of property rights in this thing. And what is your property? It is your life, your actions, or your liberty, and your estate, your stuff, as we would say today. But the word is shrunk in meaning to mean only your stuff. But for Locke and for the American founders, property, when they talk about property, means your right to your life, to your freedom, and your stuff, without which you can't do very much, so it's important. But it is not primary. It is your right to your life that is primary. Well, to understand what those rights are, you turn to law and justice, as articulated in jurisprudence, economic sociology, and moral philosophy. And then you have to ask the question, what is order? Whether liberty leads to order or to chaos depends on your understanding of what an order is. And for many people, the only order they can comprehend is the order of the army, in which people all march because they've been given commands. But there are other kinds of order as well. The order of language, the order of the market economy, many, many different forms of order that don't require a commanding officer uh, to bark out orders to persons. None of those ideas, order, justice, law, rights, <coughs> government, just stand on their own. That is, they're not, they don't have a meaning in isolation from the others. There's a science of liberty to show how these are interrelated. And you're going to get a crash course in the course of this week. You'll be privileged to hear Georgetown Law Professor and Cato Senior Fellow Randy Barnett. And Randy is now one of the most influential figures in American constitutional law. I'm not just toadying up to him. He is universally recognized as one of the top five most important lawyers in America for driving the agenda through the courts. Uh, and he is going to be addressing you on law. Social science and economic analysis from Jeffrey Myron, who is a professor, a fabulously uh, a popular professor, I should say, at Harvard University, which is a small college up north. Uh, and from Cato's senior fellow and the editor of Regulation Magazine, which is a wonderful magazine. I hope you pick up a copy. Peter Van Doren. Uh, he's a political scientist and formerly professor at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, you'll hear about First Amendment law from Susan Herman. She's professor of law at Brooklyn Law College and president of the American Civil Liberties Union. And she'll talk about the threats to freedom of speech today. American history from Professor Robert McDonald, the United States Military Academy at West Point. He's a great teacher, a great lecturer, and the author of a brand new book. I was hoping it would come out in time, but it's coming out next month. Uh, but we will have order forms. You can order copies. But it is a most wonderful a new book on Thomas Jefferson. International Relations from Christopher Preble, who's Cato's Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies. We'll have insights in the nature of economic dynamism and free markets, what used to be called the rise and fall of elites and the dangers posed to dynamic markets by cronyism, from Megan McArdle, who is a business and politics journalist uh, currently with Bloomberg. Uh, we'll have a look into Washington, D.C. from the inside, uh, from Representative Justin Amash, who talk on Capitol Hill. So we'll have an opportunity to go up to the Hill and hear from Representative Amash. I should say, in previous years, we've had other members of Congress. Uh, one who actually, uh, Senator Flake, who spoke last year, attended Cato University, who's sitting in the seats like you are, before he ran for Congress. So we take full credit for all the good things uh, he does in Congress. Uh, Dr. Emily Eakins, who's a political scientist and here with Cato as a research fellow, will do something very important for this election, which is to combine public opinion polling and political psychology to explain what's happening with the American electorate and what is happening in regards to shifts and changes 
in uh, voter behavior and opinion. Uh, and then uh, our colleague David Bowes to wrap it all up. He's the author of a wonderful book, The Libertarian Mind, and the editor of The Libertarian uh, Reader, which I think you have with you, as among many other books. Now, in my opinion, this is a really important time to stand up for liberty. We were talking at my table here about uh, the election right now, and we have uh, the candidates of two parties who apparently are the most hated candidates ever in American history. So one can have hot opinions on about who's the least bad or who's going to be the best, but this is really a remarkable election year. And uh, I think it's important that advocates of liberty stand up and articulate the idea of limited government, uh, particularly this year in this country. Uh, I'm normally an optimist. Uh, for a lot of reasons, one of which is pessimism tends to be self-fulfilling, and optimists uh, are more likely to be effective in the world. At the same time, I think there's some very dark clouds on the horizon right now. Uh, the rise of populism in the United States and Europe, uh, that's the idea that the government should do everything for you, all your problems can be solved if you just get the right man in charge, man or woman, in charge, they'll fix everything, and that's what we need to do. Enough of all this talk of all these procedures and separations of powers, someone to fix things. That seems to be very much on the rise right now. Everything for free, free college education, don't worry, the rich will pay for it, we'll just uh, go in. I remember Michael Moore putting it out, there was enough money, he said, it's hidden in the houses of the rich. What kind of view of the world that the rich people in this country, they have, they have chests of, of diamonds and rubies like a pirate's treasure chest under their beds. That's where all the wealth is. We just go into their homes and take all of the treasure chests and we can pay for all the wonderful things everyone should be entitled to. Uh, the uh, curse of so-called political correctness and the suppression of free speech on campus, the so-called social justice warriors, and now in response, a hyper-nationalistic and aggressive and I think also equally ugly backlash uh, against them that is now raising racism and so on, reintroducing it into political discourse. And at the same time, the hatred of foreign trade, the bashing of trade with foreigners, we see regularly the bashing of foreigners generally. It's always easy in election years to blame foreigners for all of our problems because they don't vote here. And consequently, we're unlikely to alienate any constituency by blaming our problems on the Chinese or Japanese or Europeans or whatever it might happen to be. Those groups articulate ideas that are incompatible lead to conflict. We have something that the far left and the far right don't have. We have an understanding of the foundations of peace and harmony and social cooperation and prosperity. We understand how people who have different religions, different views on life, different values can nonetheless live together peacefully and for mutual benefit. And that distinguishes us from those other groups, from all the various kinds of collectivists. I spend most of every year outside of the United States, and I promote our ideas. I meet with wonderful and brave people in sometimes very, very difficult places, and I can tell you our ideas are gaining traction all over the world. And the reason is because our movement, our principles, our ideas, the ideas of the American founding, unlike others, promote the ability of people to live together in peace, even if they don't share the same values or religions or views on the world. We understand win-win games. We understand positive-sum games. Market exchanges are beneficial for both sides, unlike one of our presidential candidates. It's not the case that when you exchange, there's a winner and a loser. There are two winners. That's why they exchanged in the first place. And we get that, that there are positive sum solutions to problems. We don't live in a zero or necessarily negative sum world. We believe in equal human rights for everyone, the toleration of peaceful differences. We reject statism and chauvinistic nationalism. 
a nationalistic, racist, ethnic, or religious conflict, war, conquest, and theft. And as a consequence, our principles are gaining greater acceptance all around the world on every continent. Now, narrow philosophies of conflict, forms of nationalism, may and unfortunately do triumph in particular places, countries, regions, and cultures. But they are by nature incompatible with each other. Take as a simple example, uh, I spent a fair amount of time in Central Europe, and I've been quite horrified to see the rise of something I did not think we would ever see again, which is real Nazism, real National Socialism, to be in the national parliaments and in the European Parliament is authentically shocking to me. I, if you had asked me 10 years ago, do you think that'll happen? I'd say, no, of course not. These are tiny fringe of lunatics. Um, unfortunately, now they're sitting in the parliaments. And in Hungary, for example, represent uh, the largest opposition party, the Jobbik. And they are real national socialists. Just look at their magazine with pictures of the Hungarian map superimposed with an Israeli flag, and it says, we live in an occupied country. Uh, this is where a country where half a million Jews are massacred. 1944, 1945, there may be 15,000 Jews in the country. But in their worldview, we're under the occupation of the Jews. <clears throat> the fact is that those fascists in Hungary, you might think, would get along with the fascists in Romania. They're fascists. But they hate each other more than they hate anyone else. Because they see each other as in conflict. Right? One group gains at the expense of the other. Liberals or libertarians see the world differently. And Hungarian liberals and, hung and Romanian liberals are best friends because they say, we want to live together peacefully and trade and not struggle and fight over which will be the dominant nation ruling the other. Now, I mentioned that it used to be rude to ask whether a government program was authorized under the Constitution. It used to be considered a sign of immorality to suggest that people should be allowed to live their own lives as they please, as long as they don't harm others. It used to be considered unpatriotic to suggest that invading other countries that had not attacked us is incompatible with our Constitution, much less with good sense. But it's not rude, it's not immoral, and it's not unpatriotic to insist on the rule of law and to insist that our Constitution is the supreme law of the land and to insist on justice and rights and liberty and responsibility. And it's our job to ask those hard and difficult questions. We risk sometimes being insulted, called unpatriotic, selfish, immoral, un-American, unfair, because we want to know that what is being proposed is actually justified, that it is legal, that it is efficient, that it is compatible with our values and principles. We don't want to abdicate our responsibilities as free persons and give a free hand to politicians to make all the decisions for us. So that's why we're holding this program. We're gonna ask questions. We want to discuss about what is acceptable and what is not, what is appropriate, illegal, immoral, unjust, and so on. So we can secure, as the, as the founder said, the blessings of peace and liberty and prosperity. That's a lot of material to cover. A lot of ideas to bounce around, a lot of learning. And it's all compacted in a very short period of time. Thank you very much.